The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say that I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others one of the prophets. What about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God the things of men. And he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Well, as is my want, I took the liberty of adding a few verses to our readings. That, that is always permitted. You're not allowed to trim verses out of, the, out of the readings, but you can always add on. And I, I couldn't let us get through James without taking a look at one of the most biting things he says in a letter that is full of a whole lot of biting things. James, I, I tell you, anybody who tells you that, uh, that sarcasm is unchristian should just read James, and that should take care of it. And if you're still not convinced, read Paul. And if that doesn't work, then read a bunch of the things that Jesus said. But James here in chapter 2, after he does his famous riff on, on uh, faith without works being dead, he says, yeah, sir, somebody's going to say, well, you have faith, I have works. Yeah, there's going to be somebody who's going to try to pull the works righteousness thing on you. He says, you know what? Show me your faith without deeds. I'll show you my faith by what I do. Oh, you believe that there's one God. That's terrific. Congratulations. Guess who else believes there's one God? Demons. But they have the good sense to shudder. Now, the whole book of James really is about what it looks like to really live a life that reflects what you say you believe. Because if you don't live a life that reflects what you say you believe, that may be evidence that you don't really believe that as much as you thought you did. Truth is just knowing the right answers 
is not going to get you where you need to go. This is the problem Peter had in our reading. Peter gave the right answer. Peter is not, by the way, not the guy who always gave the right answer, right? Remember the story of the transfiguration? He sees Jesus transfigured and Moses and Elijah are there, and what's his thought? We need to build some tents. And it, it not just we need to build some tents, it's a good thing we're here. Presumably the glorified Jesus with Moses and Elijah with him needed a, a bunch of guys to build tents for them. No, it, Peter, again, what a great encouragement to me that somebody who's that much of an idiot can still be used by God. But he does give the right answer here. Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, well, you're Messiah. That's who you are. But then right after he gives the right answer, immediately after that, what does Peter do? Peter gives the wrong application of the right answer. Immediately after he confesses Jesus to be Christ, he says, Jesus, this is, this is not what the Messiah is supposed to be doing. I mean, you tell us you're Messiah, and then you immediately say, don't tell anybody, which doesn't make sense, because if you're Messiah, like, everybody should know about this, right? So you tell us not to tell anybody, and then you tell us, here's what Messiah is going to do. He's going to suffer and be rejected by the leaders of our community, and then he's going to die. And then he's going to come back three days later which again does not fit the agenda. Messiah is not supposed to suffer and die. Messiah is supposed to come in on a white horse, kick out the Romans, restore the kingdom to God's people right there in Jerusalem. The, the leaders of the people should be welcoming Messiah, not rejecting Him. And Messiah is supposed to win a triumphant victory, not die. And then the whole coming back three days later, I mean, everybody knows like that dead people stay dead. This doesn't make any sense. It, so, he puts his arm around Jesus says, Jesus, wait, you're, you're doing this all wrong. And what does Jesus say to him? Get thee behind me, Satan. And I think that admonition from Jesus carries an even sharper bite when you think about where they are. See, they're in the region of Caesarea Philippi. This is, this is pagan territory. This is not where Jesus usually hung out around Galilee. They're not in Jerusalem. They're all the way out in Caesarea Philippi. And when Matthew tells us this story, he says, he includes the, the statement that Jesus says to Peter, Peter, I tell you, you're Peter, you're rocky. And on this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Well, in Caesarea Philippi, there's this place called Banyas. Banyas was a shrine to the god Pan, the god of the underworld. And the little cave out of which the headwaters of the Jordan flow was known as the gates of hell. So when Jesus says to Peter, the gates of hell will not prevail against it, he's not necessarily just using a figure of speech. In the heart of pagan territory, he's saying none of this, none of this is greater. None of this is more powerful. 
than what I am doing. But the fact is, there are competitors. There are competitors to God. We see this, if you're in the office, we're in the, the thoroughly depressing story of the, of the monarchy, where king after king after king fails to take down the shrines on the high places. King after king after king follows the example of Solomon, who enticed by the practices of his wives, went off and offered sacrifices to gods other than the one true God. The fact is that all of us were made to worship. We're all inclined to adore, to sacrifice to or for, to pursue. You think about what it's like to have a conversation about anything you're excited about. You talk about how great that restaurant was, or you talk about how great your grandkids are, and you show pictures on your phone because, like, it just it seems, it seems to be automatic. I don't have grandkids yet, but I know that this is going to be coming. When my kids were that little, we really didn't have the, the smartphones, so I'd have to actually pull out a picture. But we are made to worship. And, you know, to, it's appropriate to adore your grandkids and to be excited about the Ravens' chances this season, even though our running back core seems to be seriously depleted. But our impulse to worship, to really worship, not just to like or to love, but to really worship, to adore, to sacrifice, to seek, that impulse will be directed someplace. Like Bob Dylan said, it might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. That's where I think we need to pay attention to what our reading from Proverbs tells us. That's a little snag. I didn't, I didn't extend that reading long enough to give you that whole picture, but Something you've got to realize about Proverbs, especially at the beginning, is, is Proverbs is introduced as the teachings of a wise older father to his young son. And in the first few chapters, you have depicted not just wisdom, as we heard in our reading, but there's another woman, two women in Proverbs. There's Lady Wisdom and there's Lady Folly. He says, young man, you are going to encounter both of these ladies. They're both going to call out to you. They're both going to entice you. They're going to allure you. They're going to invite you to come into their homes. There's Lady Wisdom and there's Lady Folly. Make sure you fall for the right girl. Likewise, if Jesus is Messiah, then our call is to take up our cross and to follow Him and nobody else. Jesus, of course, is the embodiment of wisdom and all kinds of smart people have written about how He fulfills the picture of the lady wisdom that's given to us in Proverbs. In this case, falling for the right girl means that we follow 
the one true Son of Man, the Messiah, who is the only one who has the right to say to us, take up your cross and follow thou me. Amen.